ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Hawley, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, freedom of speech or a breach of contract? The ABC grapples with big questions after sacking radio presenter Antoinette Latouf. Also, the number of people with jobs has hit a record high, but so has the number of underemployed. And families struggling with the cost of computers for schoolchildren, could repurposing old computers be the answer? My eldest kid is going into year 10. I would like, and I know he would like, if we could upgrade the laptop, but we literally, I can't afford to get him a new laptop. But first this evening, Beijing has suggested a Japanese warship may have been responsible for a sonar incident which injured, which injured Australian divers last year in international waters. China's ambassador to Australia made the claim during a lengthy news conference where he also blasted the Albanese government's response to recent elections in Taiwan. Defence correspondent Andrew Green was at the Chinese embassy for today's briefing. Andrew, we know the ambassador doesn't really hold back in his comments. We've certainly seen that before. What did he say about the incident with the sonar? This particular incident has caused a lot of discomfort in the relationship, the improving relationship between Australia and China. But Ambassador Xiaoqian was very adamant today that China had nothing to do with the sonar attack back in November in international waters off Japan. And in fact, for the first time, he suggested that it may have been another country that took part in this incident and fired those sonar pulses, namely Japan. Let's hear from the ambassador during this lengthy briefing. At that moment, there was a third country boat nearby. Whether or not there was sonar from the other side, other party, we're not sure. Perhaps our Australian colleagues can find out uh, really what's the truth. So muddying the waters at least. So, Andrew, how has the federal government reacted to those comments? Well, as I mentioned at the time, the federal government was very angry at what had occurred and the Defence Minister, Richard Miles, issued a very blistering public statement. The Australian Defence Department has not yet commented on the ambassador's suggestion that it may have been another country involved and uh, the Chinese ambassador also suggested that if it hadn't, in fact, been the Chinese that fired the sonar, it would have been far more serious and perhaps even a fake move. In any case, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, was asked about this late today. This was his response. I haven't seen uh, the Ambassador's comments, but I stand by uh, the comments that we've made at the time. We made strong representations uh, to China about this incident, and we stand by uh, the representations that we made. Mm. And Andrew, other issues of concern were also raised, weren't they, at today's briefing? Yeah, particularly the issue of the moment, uh, which is the recent democratic elections in Taiwan and also the subsequent declaration by the Pacific Island of Nauru that it will be switching its allegiances, its diplomatic allegiances from Taipei to Beijing. It's one of the few countries left that 
did recognise Taiwan diplomatically, but it is now signing up to the One China policy that most of the world is with. And the Chinese ambassador had some critical words for the Albanese government for its public statements congratulating Taiwan on conducting these recent presidential elections. Let's hear from the ambassador again. And this is the issue very sensitive to in our bilateral relationship. And I can share with you that uh, through diplomatic channel, we have uh, made, uh, we have been communicating with Australian side. We have made our serious representations uh, that uh, we are strongly opposed to such a statement, a statement by a government on China's local province election, provincial elections. China's ambassador to Australia, Zhao Qian, who was also asked about the continuing detention of Australian writer Yang Heng Jun. He rejected suggestions that the democracy activists' health is deteriorating rapidly, insisted he was getting the proper medical treatment he needed, and also called for a greater cooperation with Australia in the year 2024, incidentally, the Year of the Dragon. He he says Australia should resume defence cooperation with China and also scientific cooperation. Defence correspondent Andrew Green. The fallout from the ABC's decision to sack journalist Antoinette Latouf over a social media post continues this week. Latouf was dismissed after she shared a Human Rights Watch post about the war in Gaza. Her removal has raised questions over how journalists are expected to conduct themselves on social media, as Bridget Fitzgerald reports. It's a high-profile dismissal that's put a spotlight on objectivity and what journalists can and can't say on social media. I'm actually struggling to understand whether the person who hired Antoinette Latouf had actually ever looked at Antoinette's work. Dr Jenna Price is a columnist for nine newspapers and the Canberra Times and a visiting fellow at the Australian National University. She's been a journalist for 42 years. I mean, Antoinette is a journalist, also a columnist, but clearly an advocate. And her social media presence has always been one of advocacy uh, and promoting diversity. So you have to look beyond that and think to yourself... How is this person going to be on social media? Well, just looking at Antoinette's presence on social media, you'd have a very clear view that she would be uh, trying to help people in Gaza. Lebanese-Australian journalist Antoinette Latouf was hired by the ABC for a week in December to present a program on ABC Sydney. Three days into her employment, she was dismissed. Her lawyer, Josh Bornstein, has told nine newspapers Miss Latouf was informed that sharing a Human Rights Watch post on the Gaza conflict was a breach of the ABC's social media policy. On the 19th of December, Ms Latouf had shared a post in which Human Rights Watch had reported that the Israeli government was using starvation as a method of warfare. ABC News had reported on the very same report the day before and again later that week. Dr Price says questions should be asked about what exactly Antoinette Latouf was told she could and could not post. Well, you'd have to be asking yourself about the quality of the induction of the person. So this is not just about the journalism and the ethics of the journalism and whether it's suitable for the ABC. It's about someone who says, oh, just don't tweet anything controversial. Well, what does controversial mean? It's not controversial to say that uh, Gaza has been blockaded. It's not controversial to say that 
uh, thousands of people are dying in Gaza. That, those are not controversial statements. They are facts. The Sydney Morning Herald has reported Ms Latouf was sacked after a coordinated letter-writing campaign by a pro-Israel lobby group that targeted ABC chair Ita Butros and managing director David Anderson. Kenneth Roth, the former head of Human Rights Watch, says it appears the ABC's capitulated to outside pressure. And I think it's worth noting that, you know, this was not an opinion piece. You know, it's not like Antoinette Latouf said, oh, you know, I think Israel's wrong or Israel should do this or that. You know, she was reporting facts and facts, you know, as indeed reported by one of the world's two leading international human rights groups. Some ABC journalists have attended meetings of their union, the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, in recent days, which have been critical of the sacking of Antoinette Latouf and the treatment of culturally diverse staff. When asked about Ms Latouf's dismissal today, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said it's a matter for the ABC. I don't want to create a, another issue, which is uh, for uh, sitting parliamentarians to try to direct or even be seen to be trying to direct uh, the ABC. The ABC's social media policy states that employees are not required to have social media and any posts on social media should not damage the ABC's reputation for impartiality and independence. In the case of this one with Antoinette Latouf, if, if she does have positions as an advocate for various issues, which as I understand she does, uh, that's a matter for the ABC when they employed her. Matthew Rickardson is a professor of communication at Deakin University and a former journalist. As an industry, the news media hasn't ended its grappling with how to deal with social media as journalists in, in all of our uh, functions and all of our guises, if you like, because we're not only reporters, we're analysts, we're commentators. So the idea that the journalist is not going to have an opinion, but both flies in the face of reality, but also it flies in the face of, of what it means to be a human being. Antoinette Latouf has brought an unlawful termination claim against the ABC. There'll be a hearing before the Fair Work Commission tomorrow. Bridget Fitzgerald reporting. And in a statement, the ABC's managing director, David Anderson, has rejected any claim that the organisation has been influenced by external pressure. He also says the ABC takes very seriously its responsibility to champion diversity and inclusion. More Australians are employed than ever before, according to new private research out today. But there's also a record number of us not getting enough hours. The Roy Morgan figures show despite surging employment, nearly one in five people are jobless or underemployed. Experts say overall it paints a positive picture with the economy slowing down after high inflation. Eliza Getsey has more. The numbers from Roy Morgan's survey show the number of jobs has surged to 14 million. That suggests 600,000 more Australians are working now compared with this time last year. And plenty of us have plenty to do. Do you feel like you get enough hours at work? Probably too many. <laughs> Yeah, I'm happy with enough hours, yeah. I could work more, but obviously there's not enough time in a day to come home and have dinner, so... How many hours a week do you do? I average 40. Last week, 60. Yeah, the plumbing industry is big at the moment. But some say they aren't getting enough work. Actually, I would like more. Like, I just work two days a week. Yeah, I would like to, like, take another job. I mean, normally, outside of holidays, I would do, like, 22 hours a week. And during holidays, they come my shift to, like, maybe 10 hours, 8 hours. 
I mean, yeah, it's less money. Can't really afford a lot of the stuff that I do usually. Michelle Levine is the CEO of Roy Morgan. She says the overall figures are good news for an economy that's been on a roller coaster, from the chaos of the pandemic to post-COVID inflation. And it's partly thanks to the rebound of migration. Of course, immigration was stopped and everything during COVID. But just in the last 12 months, we've actually had an increase of 831,000 people aged 14 plus. Now, we're talking about that in terms of employment, in that these people come and they take jobs, but they also create jobs. They create demand. They need somewhere to live. They need to buy food. They need to buy clothing. So it's a growth in the whole economy. She says the record number of people who are underemployed, now 1.6 million, isn't all bad in that it could ease cost of living pressures. What we're seeing is we're seeing mortgage stress coming off the the boil a little bit, fewer people in mortgage stress, just tiny. Um, we're actually seeing inflation coming down a little bit and we're actually starting to see employment increasing, surging. So I would say these are really good numbers. It really is a case of hoping that the employment surge that we're seeing, because you don't just have a whole bunch of people getting employed, you have jobs that they do. It's a, it's a real demand and supply thing that you would hope that the demand continues and that the people who are working a little bit can actually increase that amount of work. Angela Jackson is lead economist with Impact Economics. She says the relatively positive outlook came as something of a surprise for economists. Certainly it wasn't something that we were forecasting or expecting. I think back at the height of the pandemic where you know a lot of Australians were out of work um, and a lot of Australians lost work, there was a real concern about that scarring effect that it would take a long time for the labour market to return to to its previous levels. And what we've really seen is not only has it returned and did it return very, very quickly, but it's continued to grow. Um, and people have also been able to pick up those additional hours, particularly women, where we've seen that real increase in full-time employment. She says if the government can achieve its goals of getting workers skilled up, that will help improve the underemployment rate. You know, there's still close to 400,000 vacancies across the economy. Make sure that Australians have access to the, the training to get the skills for the jobs that are there. That's a really important part of it. Um, and it's also important that the government has, the, I guess, the fiscal policy and the macroeconomic settings that mean the economy is going at a rate that can create the employment that people want. The Australian Bureau of Statistics will release its employment figures tomorrow. That report from Eliza Getze. This is PM with me, Samantha Hawley. You can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. Ahead on our show, how Australia can get ready for the age of artificial intelligence. Well, it's well known how dangerous COVID and the flu can be, but another respiratory illness that puts pressure on Australian hospitals and the community is the respiratory virus known as RSV. Now a vaccine is one step closer, with the Therapeutic Goods Administration approving its use for those aged over 60. Isabel Masali reports. Adelaide woman Lisa Loder was caring for her three-year-old grandson when she caught RSV from him. At first, she thought it was COVID. And my chest just got worse and I couldn't stop coughing. I probably went for five days where I didn't have any more than a five-minute break from coughing. Um, so I went to the doctor, he put me on antibiotics and it just got worse and worse until I lost my voice 
and I couldn't talk, so I wrote a note and went to the doctor and they saw me and did a swab, had RSV, also had bilateral pneumonia with it and I honestly thought I was going to die. It was terrible. So when asked about news of an RSV vaccine, she says she'll be first in line and urges others to join too. The Therapeutic Goods Administration has approved a vaccine for private prescription to over 60s, with details on its supply to come soon. Professor Robert Boyd describes it as really effective. He's an infectious disease expert with the University of Sydney. So it uses a little bit of the virus of the outer coat, combines it with this adjuvant, this chemical stimulant, and it results in a strong antibody response, which is protective. The trial showed that it was over 80% protective. Uh, and when you looked at severe lower respiratory tract infection, it was over 90% protective. So that's the kind of figures we want to see from a vaccine. It's uh, safely administered. It's now been TGA approved. So it's likely to be available within, within the next uh, few weeks and months. Respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, can cause cold and flu-like symptoms. Most cases are mild, but some can lead to chest infections. And RSV can be particularly dangerous for children, the elderly and those who are immunocompromised. Professor Boyce says it's also very contagious and needs to be taken more seriously. Getting that uh, recognition of the disease is going to be important to understand it and to want to prevent it. It really is uh, a common infection. And what happened during COVID, as everyone knows, the separation of people led to a host of infectious diseases becoming less common for two to three years. And now they're on the way back. We're having to pay the immune debt that occurred as a consequence. And so now, especially the very young and even older people too, who haven't seen uh, any particular viral or bacterial respiratory infection, it's seeing them now. And so we've seen surges in bacteria and viruses over the last year, and RSV is one of them. Associate Professor Hannah Moore is an epidemiologist with the Telethon Kids Institute and Curtin University. Her research team examined what Australian parents and pregnant women know about the virus. They found 75% of participants have heard of it, but only half knew it's associated with pneumonia and can be severe. She wants more community awareness and hopes vaccines will become more common. We are on the cusp of being able to prevent RSV. We have never been closer uh, for prevention of this devastating illness for young children and the elderly. This is a virus that can cause um, thousands of hospital admissions in young children every year. It has devastating effects for families. So this is incredibly important if we can prevent hundreds of hospitalisations every winter. Professor Moore adds there's also been progress on vaccines for pregnant women in Australia and babies. That's because an infection early in life can lead to hospitalisation and the need for breathing support along with respiratory illnesses like asthma later in life. So for young babies, there is a product that has been licensed by the TGA, a monoclonal antibody, which is given for babies to provide passive protection. That was approved for use at the end of last year. So I hope in the next one to two years, we will have a program for babies across Australia to receive this immunisation. In a statement, the Department of Health told PM it's currently working to update the Australian Immunisation Handbook in line with the development and release of several RSV vaccines, and that's expected to happen mid-2024. The handbook provides clinical guidelines for the healthcare sector. 
As for the vaccine for over 60s, costs are yet to be released and it won't be free, at least for now. The committee that helps determine if vaccines are free is yet to receive an application, though the vaccine company plans to apply. Isabel Masali reporting with Amelia Walters. As we approach the start of another school year, more than half of Australian families say they can't afford the computers their kids need for schoolwork. But this country throws out millions of electronic devices annually. We're among the world's biggest producers of e-waste. Now, some companies are working to redirect used computers headed for the scrap heap to the children who need them. Rachel Hayter reports. As families prepare their children for the school year, almost nine in ten are worried about being able to afford everything. It's quite financially hard. It's, we're looking at around, say, two and a half thousand, and that's the public system. What kinds of things do you need? High school to... uniforms, everything from scratch, year seven starting, and then fresh uniforms from year one to year six. I got second hand, which is great. The uniforms were like under 300. I heard it could be thousands of dollars, like $2,000 or $3,000. School fees and book lists, electronic items that need to be upgraded, uh, things that have been lost from last year. Children's education charity, The Smith Family, has released its annual survey, which found more than half of families can't afford the computers their children need to do schoolwork. My eldest kid is going into year 10. He's still using the laptop we got at the beginning of year 7, as required by the school. And I would like, and I know he would like, if we could upgrade the laptop to a better one and a faster one because he's doing like industrial designy stuff but we literally I can't afford to get him a new laptop. It's not as high-end as it should be for like the electives that I've chosen and what I've decided to do in school so I think I definitely do need a better one. We need iPads for oh, my for learning. They mostly do all their work on computers now so um, generally they need to have an iPad or a laptop and then you know replace them every few years. And as hundreds of thousands of Australian students go without the computers they need, what's known as the digital divide, there's no shortage of decent unwanted computers in this country. In fact millions of them are crushed up every year and sent to landfill. The e-waste produced on an annual basis is roughly equal to 15,000 humpback whales. Or, if you put it in other terms, the total migration of humpback whales up the east coast of Australia on an annual basis. Peter McIntyre is a general manager from Asset Financier Quadrant. The company leases computers to corporate customers. He explains that traditionally companies acquire computers, keep them for three years and then dispose of them. But now the leaser is trying something new. Our relationship with the Smith family is to work with our corporate customers to donate a portion of their fleet of the returned assets that come back at the end of the lease to be able to assist in the underprivileged children's educational outcomes. The new program is called Green Lease. The requirement for the, the Smith family's point of view is hundreds of thousands. And that's why we've taken upon ourselves to include and, and assist them in that initiative because we have the capacity to generate thousands of devices on, on a per annum basis that could be put through this initiative. After a successful trial in New Zealand, Quadrant learned a computer is most valuable to a student when it's internet connected. 
One in six survey respondents say their kids don't have the internet access they need to do their schoolwork. The Smith family uses several partners. I know Optus does a Donate Your Data program that allows them to provide internet connectivity. Mr McIntyre says computer green leasing programs have the potential to both reduce the environmental impact of electronic waste and help bridge the digital divide. Rachel Hayter reporting. The federal government has today announced the next steps for the regulation of artificial intelligence, or AI, in Australia. An expert group is being set up to advise the government and mandatory requirements for the use of high-risk AI applications are being considered. Technology experts say Australia is lagging behind other countries when it comes to regulation and are urging the government to act quickly. Samantha Donovan has more. Whether it's being relied on to write an essay, drive a car or develop life-saving antibiotics, the use of artificial intelligence is quickly growing around the world. The Federal Minister for Industry and Science, Ed Husick, says it's helping society in many ways. AI models, they're able to crunch large amounts of data uh, at record speed, enabling new ways, for example, of detecting cancers or optimising uh, traffic flow through to improving the lives of those with disabilities and also changing the way we train and educate people. Uh, it's also predicted that using AI and automation could generate up to a 600 billion a year for the uh, Australia for Australia's GDP by 2030. But Mr Husick says a lack of trust and community fear of AI are acting as a handbrake on the expanded use of the technology. The government called for submissions on how Australia can best regulate the technology mid last year and got more than 500 responses. The government's now planning a number of initiatives to help firm up how we regulate AI in Australia. They include working with industry to develop a voluntary AI safety standard, the voluntary labelling and watermarking of AI material and the setting up of an expert group to advise on the development of what Mr Husick is calling mandatory guardrails. There will be some things that may present a safety risk or may present a risk in terms of people's future prospects, be it in work or in front of the law. We do need to be able to have uh, those mandatory uh, guardrails, as I said, that say these are the red lines that you cannot cross and that if you do uh, present risk, that we have expectations about how to manage that risk. Ed Husick says the so-called guardrails could include things like the testing of products as they're being designed and developed, requiring transparency on what they're intended to do and accountability when they're used in ways that weren't intended. So what sort of AI needs to be regulated as a matter of urgency in Australia? Professor Toby Walsh is the Chief Scientist at the AI Institute at the University of New South Wales. Applications where, where the decisions are hard to reverse, whether they be about you know, deciding welfare payments or visas or, or uh, employment, where we really do need um, to ensure that there are rules in place, guard, guardrails in place, um, to see that there's transparency, there's, there's accountability. As another example, um, we're going to see 4 billion people go to the polls in around the world this year. Um, and AI is starting to be used to generate uh, fake information, deep fakes. Um, I think we're going to, again, need to, to protect the integrity of our electoral process by having uh, rules about, um, about, these, about these sorts of things. 
He says Australia has a bit of catching up to do when it comes to regulating AI. And we're not leading the pack for sure. Um, we see uh, countries like the European Union and, and the United States, even China, being much more proactive on regulation, on, on the risk here. The Australian Academy of Technological Sciences and Engineering is urging the federal government to act quickly to set up the AI Expert Advisory Group and to introduce the so-called guardrails for high-risk AI applications. Professor Shazia Sadik from the University of Queensland is an Academy member. It is a challenge. We are a little bit behind in terms of the advancements that have taken place very recently, both in US and China and in other parts of the world. Uh, I think we, we have to balance uh, the risks that this technology potentially poses with the benefits that it brings. And in terms of the benefits, we, we have to get ahead of the curve. We have to have our uh, you know, homegrown capability and expertise that can help us avail those benefits in our local context, for our local industry and for things that matter to Australia. Are there issues you feel the government hasn't addressed adequately in its plans for AI announced today? So if I was to make one recommendation out of all of this, I would say that Australia is lagging behind in terms of its investment in AI capability and in expert base and, and research. I see PhD students as the engine room of, of, uh, of this work, and we would certainly like to see uh, the, the government take a much more ambitious and bold um, steps towards, uh, towards capability building in that respect. The Federal Minister for Industry and Science, Ed Husick, says he's expecting to receive the recommendations of the new AI Expert Advisory Panel later this year. Samantha Donovan. Thanks for joining me for PM. I'm Samantha Hawley. You'll find all our interviews and reports on the PM webpage and you can catch the program live or later on the ABC Listen app. You can catch the AM team with Kim Landers tomorrow morning and we'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Have a lovely evening. Good night. Good night.